Hello, I'm Dr. Brian McDonough, and welcome to Primary Care Today on ReachMD. My guest today is Dr. Charles Walker. He's Assistant Professor of Surgery in the Department of Urology at Yale University School of Medicine. And we're going to be talking about a very interesting topic, penile prostheses, and when we use them, how we use them, how effective they are, the barriers, all those sorts of things we're going to talk about. First of all, Dr. Walker, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here, and this is a topic that I'm always uh, very uh, eager to discuss. What condition is the penile prosthesis intended to treat? So this is really the surgical gold standard for the treatment of, of erectile dysfunction. So it, it is more or less, if you're going to go the surgical option, this is what you're going to do. Describe it for me a little bit about the sure. placement of the prostheses and which patients maybe are candidates or who shouldn't have it. Right. So those are, those are all great questions. Let me start with the candidates part first, and then we'll kind of get to the surgical part, because uh, I think that's really relevant to the audience at hand. Uh, you know, we are well aware as urologists, uh, especially those of us that are in the area of men's health, which is the subspecialty area that uh, that I uh, that I practice uh, within. That uh, ED is typically triaged on the first line by family care practitioners, also primary care doctors. So a lot of ED is, is initially evaluated and treated uh, in those uh, clinical contexts uh, or environments. And, you know, the first-line treatment for these patients is the phosphodiesterase 5 inhibitors or the class of uh, medication that uh, Viagra belongs to. And they're quite effective. And so many patients can be treated effectively with, uh, with the pill. We'll just call it the pill for now. Uh, I think everybody knows what that means. Um, and so many men are effectively treated, but there is actually a substantial uh, failure rate for, for these medications as well, and it's particularly difficult uh, to have a satisfactory response for patients who have more advanced comorbidities such as diabetes, uh, obesity, uh, heart disease, things of that nature, uh, and also uh, cancer survivors and people who have undergone uh, treatments for pelvic cancers uh, in particular. And so for these men, uh, the, the medications simply are not effective, and, and we really uh, are fortunate that we have uh, a number of uh, other alternatives. Uh, and in my opinion, the penile implant uh, or penile prosthesis, I'll go back and forth between using those two terms that really mean the same thing, are really the gold standard um, uh, in that scenario. So really it would be for first and foremost for men who um, fail to respond to medical therapy. And I will point out that there are a number of intermediary uh, therapies that we, that we do offer men uh, after failure with the medications. And so there are injection therapies that have been shown to be quite effective and vacuum devices which have shown to be effective. But these other treatments have lower compliance rates, uh, and they have a lot of side effects that uh, most men are, are sort of... Um, wary uh, to, uh, to take on. Uh, and uh, among them, you know, administering these medications with a needle or using vacuum devices can actually be not conducive to the mood, if you will. Uh, and so men will tell me that uh, the devices are simply ruining the moment or uh, are, not, are simply not feasible for them. So for these men, the penile implant is also a great option. So it would be really uh, any man who has failed medical therapy or uh, 
call the second-line therapies, the vacuum devices and uh, injection therapies, or simply is not um, inclined to take advantage of some of these other therapies because they're unhappy with the side effects. Uh, so those would be the kind of the majority of men we see. And then there are, are others uh, who, for different reasons, may, may not be candidates either for uh, for therapies like uh, the uh, PDE5 inhibitors, I'll refer to the class of medications that Viagra belongs to as uh, PDE5 inhibitors. That's really how we talk about it in uh, in medical circles. Or are not candidates for the other treatments. Uh, so th those would be really the, the bulk of men uh, who we see um, uh, and who really are, are candidates or are primary candidates for treatment with a penile implant. Um, now, any man with ED is a candidate, in theory. Uh, and, and, and occasionally I have men who come and say, you know, I don't want to do any of those treatments. I don't want to do the pills. I don't want to do anything else. I just want you to give me an implant. Uh, although that's, that's a, a, more, a, a less common discussion that I have with my patients. So once we've established who, who's eligible and who the candidates are, uh, there are a lot of things that go into uh, the discussion about what type of implant to use, and there's a variety of different implants uh, out there that we can use. We can kind of come back to that later in the discussion. Um, and, you know, sort of when to do the surgery uh, uh, and things of that nature. Uh, but once you've established that you have an eligible candidate, you've had a very uh, thorough, in-depth uh, discussion about the risks and benefits of treatment. You've made sure that psychologically they're suitable candidates uh, because we are talking about a prosthetic device that uh, uh, can have a psychological impact on patients. Uh, and, uh, and you've sort of had all those discussions and gotten your medical clearances, then you would proceed to surgery. Uh, and the surgery essentially is done a couple of different ways. Uh, but uh, the general um, sort of uh, overall summary of what we do is that we're going to make an incision uh, at some point uh, uh, near the base of the penis. Uh, and through that very small incision, typically uh, three and a half to four centimeters in size, uh, we're going to insert the different components of these devices. And these devices can have anywhere from two uh, to, to three components. Um, and we place those components sterilely. Uh, it is an, uh, an operation that we typically do under anesthesia, although it has been done under local and spinal. Uh, the operation itself takes anywhere from, uh, you know, 45 minutes typically to an hour and a half, depending on the surgeon and the center and the volume. I will say that uh, I typically admit my patients, and I know that a number of, of urologists do, but it has also been done as an outpatient procedure. Um, and the recovery time is about three to six weeks. So that's the basic gist of the operation. Now, uh, there are devices that um, are deformable or malleable, uh, and there are devices that are inflatable. Uh, and so that's a, a, an important branch point in the uh, decision-making of deciding sort of, you know, not only who's an eligible candidate, but what type of device they should get and what's most appropriate uh, under the circumstances. And there's a lot of things that figure into that as well. You're listening to Primary Care Today on ReachMD. My guest is Dr. Charles Walker, Assistant Professor of Surgery in the Department of Urology at Yale University of School of Medicine. And you do bring up some interesting points. I, I follow what you're saying, but you mentioned now there's the inflatable and also malleable 
Describe that and how they work and how the patient would use them. The basic premise behind the implant is that you are going to have a, a cylinder uh, or a rod that is placed into the cavernosal space of the penis. So this is the space that receives blood typically when, you, when a man has an erection. Uh, and this space is a defined space. It's defined by um, very clear anatomic uh, landmarks. Um, and we can actually make an incision into the very um, robust um, coverings of that space. Uh, we call that the tunica um, albuginea, uh, which is the, uh, the very tough uh, fascial uh, covering of those, of those spaces. Uh, and that's what gives the penis its rigidity. So we're able to actually access those areas uh, typically by making an incision with a scalpel into that space. Um, and we can dilate those spaces. The, the, we call them the cavernosal spaces. So those spaces are, uh, are made up of a very spongy vascular tissue that receives blood. And so uh, that is the area where we're going to be inserting the cylinders. So for every operation, the cylinders will be placed, and that's really what gives the man uh, his erection. Now, depending on whether it's a malleable device or an inflatable device, there may be other components. So the malleable devices simply consist of two rods, uh, and we place them in those spaces, and they will actually um, give rigidity to the penis that, when configured appropriately, essentially will mimic an erection. Uh, and, and I say configured appropriately because depending on how these rods are manipulated, you can either have what really approximates an erection or you can have something that... Um, uh, is is not really configured to to give you to give you a uh, penetration. Uh, so you can kind of fold these um, these rods out so that they come come out from the body at, at a 90 degree angle. In which case, it's very much um, like a normal erection. Or you can fold them down. In which case, you really it, it would be non-productive from the standpoint of uh, of trying to be sexually active. Uh, so uh, I actually refer to it as a fold like a folding chair. And that's what I tell my patients because it's really hard to explain to them what, what, uh, you know, how these things work. And I and I like the analogy of a folding chair because it's something that, when you fold it up, you can sort of you can't really sit in it. You can put it in the car. You can take it where you want. Uh, but it has complete functionality when you actually open it up uh, when you get to your destination. And so it's the same same kind of thing with the malleable device. Uh, and I do that also to to put them at ease and uh, and and to try to inject a little humor into the discussion. Uh, now, the inflatable devices have cylinders that are inflatable, and so typically they come in a collapsed state, and they're connected by tubing to a pump mechanism that we typically place in the scrotum, and they may or may not have another component that actually holds a sterile um, saline solution. We call that a reservoir. So you have your reservoir component that you place in the, in the pelvis, and that's connected by tubing to the pump, which is connected by tubing to the cylinders. And really what you do with that pump is to cycle that saline from the reservoir into those cylinders and to allow them to distend uh, and become firm. Uh, and so that's a, that would be the inflatable device. Um, it's, it, it's a functioning, uh, functioning device. Uh, it has multiple components, so we oftentimes refer to it as a multi-component inflatable device. 
and it it probably well I wouldn't say probably it certainly approximates an erection uh, the most uh, closely I think uh, and so there is for men I think a greater degree of satisfaction than uh, than with the malleable devices. We only have about a minute and a half left, and you've covered a lot of it. The two remaining questions I'd have would be the first would be does it change the size of the penis, and what is the impact on um, the sexual enjoyment for the male and the female, for that matter? So that's a really important question. Um, so the first is uh, the size is not affected. I mean, there is potentially a slight loss of length uh, when a man has an implant uh, put in, and that's because typically there's, over time, as a result of erectile dysfunction, there's fibrosis uh, and some loss of length. And in terms of the pleasure, it's important to remember that these implants are placed uh, in such a way to purely take the place of blood flow. So sensation uh, of the skin, uh, pleasure, uh, orgasm, uh, all of the things that men typically experience uh, when they have an erection uh, will be preserved when you have an implant. And that's really important to remember because men very often ask that question. And and. Uh, for the woman, uh, the same is true, and, and uh, a number of very good studies and surveys have been done to show that both uh, men and their partners uh, report very high rates of satisfaction, and these rates of satisfaction typically are, uh, you know, 90% uh, or higher, and for the inflatable devices can be as high as 98%. The other last point I would make about this is that uh, the big concerns that we have with penile implants, and one that I hear a lot from colleagues in, in uh, family medicine and primary care, is that these devices are associated with a high complication rate, infection rate, et cetera. And it's important to remember that the overall complication rate rates for penile implants is actually quite low. The infection rates are uh, in current uh, times, uh, particularly in, in the hands of surgeons who have a lot of experience, uh, 2% or less. And the survival of these uh, devices is, is outstanding. You know, we find that uh, if, you, if you look at five and ten years out, um, roughly, you know, 93% or 90 to 95% at five years uh, and 70 to 75% at uh, ten years survival uh, of these devices. Uh, and the one concern there is that over time there is a risk that they can malfunction or stop working. But we have found that the great majority of these implants are still functioning at uh, 5, 10, and even 15 years out. So it's really a great option for men who, um, as I mentioned earlier, are the appropriate candidates. Dr. Charles Walker, I want to thank you for joining us on Primary Care today on ReachMD. I appreciate your time. It was very informative, and I'm sure a lot of our physicians in the audience know a lot more about it, and it's something they can consider for their patients. Thank you again for taking the time to join us. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. If you missed any of this broadcast, you can download our podcast and hear the entire broadcast. I'm Dr. Brian McDonough. Thanks for joining me today on Primary Care Today. And remember, at ReachMD, you can be part of the knowledge. Thanks again for listening.